But the interesting, like, like I was saying earlier, okay, you couldn't hold that position for the full time trial, but if you know when to get in that position, then that's really interesting. That that that's your ticket. Like, understand, okay, I can't hold the position for long, but you know, I know this is the most important bit, so I'm going to really get down and just suffer through it, and then a bit later, you know that it's less important, so you can have a bit of a rest. They're sharing the best places to go error testing. They're sharing their own tests. What's their CDA? What did they try? What were their results? And so I've always felt quite strongly that this is, you're going to get the biggest impact if you can create this community where people can guide each other. Hey, have you tried this? Have you tried that? Oh, I tried this helmet the other day. It didn't do what I thought it would. Oh yeah, I had the same. Maybe it's a bit windy. Like aerodynamics is complicated. Everybody's an armchair aerodynamicist. They think it's simple, but it's, it's massively complicated. So creating these sort of ecosystems where people can learn what to do. I've always had this this sort of idea in the back of my head that lies very much like sort of climbing up a, a cliff face. And, you know, at some point, some of us say, you know what, the view's pretty good from here. I'm going <laughs> to rest up and enjoy the view. And, and, and others of us keep on climbing until we die and fall off without ever getting to enjoy the view. So for me, it's always been like, you know, periodically you need to kind of stop and reassess and say like, what are we doing here? I'm Anthony Walsh. This is the Roadman Cycling Podcast, a founder series, where we get inside the heads of those who drive this planet forward. You can quote them, you can disagree with them, you can glorify or vilify them. The only thing you can't do is ignore them because they change things. They push the human race forward. And while some may see them as crazy ones, we see genius because the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. It's episode 619 of the Roadman Cyclone podcast. It's a founder series, and I talk to AeroSensor founder, Barney Garud. Let's cue that intro. Before I jump into today's show, I'm fascinated with the thread that links top performers. Those who succeed from those who don't. The single biggest indicator as to whether a roadman coaching client hits their goals or not, it's whether they use a parameter. As a coach, it gives me access to a world of data. Coaching without a parameter, it's like going out sailing without a compass. The brand I've used for a decade and the one I recommend to clients every day of the week is Stages. And I'm super happy to now have Stages as a show sponsor. It's water resistant, plus or minus 1.5% accuracy, 200 hours battery life off a single coin cell battery and handmade in Boulder, Colorado. I'm trusting Stages. I have for over a decade and the best in the world have trusted it, including five Tour de France victories and counting. If you head over to stagescycling.com and use code ROADMAN at checkout, that's going to get you 20% off full price parameters and factory install service. That's stagescycling.com and use the code ROADMAN at checkout. Roadman, welcome back to another Roadman Cycling Podcast. It is another in our founder series. And this week, I get a chance to sit down with Bernie Garud from AeroSensor. Aerosensor.tech is where you can check this out. This follows on from a conversation I had last week on the podcast on last week's founder series where I got to chat with Pat Warner, who helped build stages cycling into what it is today. So Pat wears two hats. On the one hand, we have the business story of Pat, the vice president of stages cycling. But secondly, we have the athlete. And that athletic story was fascinating because 
Pat has recently broken the World Masters error record and he managed to do this on quite a modest budget with limited training time. So how, you may ask, is this possible? Well, it's possible because of his crazy coefficient of frontal drag, CDA. So if you don't know what that is, it's how aerodynamic we are, how we move through the wind. So when you throw a dart, that's obviously very aerodynamic. If you throw an apple, it's not as aerodynamic. Quite a crude example, but you get the idea. So Barney used a tool, which I was absolutely enamored with, called AeroSense to work on his coefficient of frontal drag. It's a tool that's in beta. And today I get to chat with the founder, Barney Garud. Barney has an extensive career in aerodynamics in Formula One, and he brings that vast experience into the cycling world for a technology which has the potential to change cycling, change everything from how we position ourselves on the bike to where we position the bike within the bunch or within the group ride to get maximum rest periods. It's a really fascinating insight into building a company and this crazy new emerging technology. I hope you enjoy this chat. Let me welcome to the podcast, Barney Garud from AeroSensor. Welcome to the Roadman Cycling Podcast. Hello, thank you for having me. Bernie, I am really interested to hear the journey that got you there. My journey, we chatted briefly last time we talked and it's been anything but a straight line. It's been more of a zigzag, one step forward, two steps back from lawyer to bike racer to entrepreneur to podcaster. What's that kind of breadcrumb trail that led you to designing AeroSensor? So um, going right back, and you, you mentioned the, um, the breadcrumb trail last time we talked, and I was giving a bit of thought, actually. And when I go back all the way to when I was a, a kid, my, my dad used to be a pilot in the RAF um, a long, long time ago. And he used to take me to air shows, and I was always interested in aerodynamics. I used to jump off the um, climbing frame with a plastic bag, pretending it was a parachute. I used to make kind of model airplanes and things. And I, I loved all that stuff, but I had this idea that I wanted to be a doctor. Um, but actually going around Southampton University Medical School, <clears throat> when, when I'd finished doing that, I had a bit of time left over. So I looked around the aeronautics department and this thing just clicked. And I was like, no, this is what you need to be doing. Um, again, still interested in aircraft. Ended up going to Imperial to do aeronautics. And during that time, I realized that the development time for aeroplanes typically sort of 10 to 20 years. And I just couldn't bear to be developing something for much, that much time. Uh, Imperial was involved back then still in quite a lot of F1 aerodynamics. And um, talking to the John Harvey, who ended up being my supervisor, he suggested that he put me forward for a um, PhD that was going to be sponsored by Ferrari, Formula One team. <clears throat> so I did the PhD, ended up working for Ferrari, um, for three years, moved on to a few other teams. Um, back in 2012, when I had my first, first son, I kind of realized that actually I can't be working those long hours and weekends all my life. So I went into consultancy, hoping to get away from motorsport, but actually you always end up being drawn, drawn back. <clears throat> and so I always had this thought in the back of my head that I'd really like to come up with some sort of a product that would allow me to be a bit more self-sufficient. Um, and even when I was working in Formula One, quite often I'd get involved in other projects like um, wing balance design or little bits of software that were just a little bit more different just for my own interest, really, because I'm sort of a bit of a 
restless soul. I like to learn new things. <laughs> and then in, while I was doing that, probably in about 2015, 2016, I started, started talking to one of my ex-colleagues, John Buckley, who's he's, he's quite a keen um, triathlete. I was just a pretty casual cyclist, but we both had independently had this idea that it would be nice if you could measure aerodynamic drag on a bike over we started just in our spare time sort of playing around with ideas doing some wind tunnel tests on a probe that would work on bikes um better than what we were used to in formula one we, we both of us separately seen that uh the, the normal pito probes that you use just don't work well at low speed and high wind yaw angles which is what you typically see on bikes so we've been chipping away at it since then we've got a, a patent for our our probe um, we've decided to go in slightly different directions. So, so John's now doing his his own um, thing. I'm continuing to do these these sensors, and um, it's got to the point now where it, it works really well. And this this is really what I always wanted to do because it gives me the opportunity to be creative, to be my own boss, and to do something that really back in 2015, 2016, no one had done before. Since then, um, a couple of other people like Notio and um, Aeropod have come out with similar devices but actually with our technology i think we've really got something quite unique um so that sort of brings us back to where i am today so what's life like at these formula one teams as as we see them from the outside and they're all glamorous but from working inside the formula one team is there any do's and don'ts that you've taken from that to when you're building your company now, either in terms of culture, work processes, work ethic, work-life balance, what are the, the the good points and the bad points of these Formula One teams you're saying? I think work-life balance just isn't there. I did, I did spend one year, actually two years working at the track, so one year at the races, another year um, when they still had test teams. So I was, I was on the test team traveling around and I, I met people in that period who um, one of them had missed the birth of at least one of his children because he was at a race. Um, and th- th- these, these, are, these are quite special people. They're people who will very happily and willingly put everything into their career, which you, you have to do if you're going to races, you're um, away from home probably half the weekends of the year. And, and I just realized that's, that's not what I want to do. Um, the rest of my time was working at the factory, but even then, um, in fact, John and I used to be on the same aerodynamics team this was at ferrari this is now at mercedes and back then all of the teams were run, running their wind tunnels 24 hours a day seven days a week at ferrari <clears throat> my job was as an aerodynamics engineer running the tests and i'd spend time doing night shifts so i do kind of 10 or sometimes even 14 days of night shifts just running the wind tunnel um at mercedes we had a kind of team of people who would run the wind tunnel for us but when it came to the end of one of our sessions john and i were very keen that you know, we, we got ev- everything absolutely right. You need to be able to make decisions on the fly. So he'd work till three or four in the morning. I'd drive in, um, take over him at three or four in the morning and run the test until we got had to hand over to the next team at 10 in the morning. And it's, it's just relentless because then once you come out, you're straight into designing the next iteration of parts, which you might be you know, two or three weeks later, you'll be back in the wind tunnel testing them. So it's very much... Um, you, you're just sort of turning the handle is the way I used to think of it. You're, you're just, you know, design, test, analyze, design, test, analyze. And does that make a really, uh, does it make a really transient employee? Because it doesn't seem like there's a lot of work-life balance or time for extracurricular activities there. So how sustainable is 
employment in these companies in the long term? I think the way I am, I'm quite driven. I, I work, you know, I, I tend to put work first, <clears throat> um, much to the annoyance of my my wife. So the, the trouble is it can really suck you in. There were people who were just trying to turn up and do their nine to six, I think it was, or eight to six, um, with a few extra hours. But if you want to progress, you have to be putting in, you have to really dedicate your life to it. So if you look at the guys who are right at the top, it is their life. And I just wasn't prepared to do that. Is there anything positive from your time working there that you will bring across to your company culture as you hopefully build out your team? Yeah, no, very much so. And, and, to, and to be clear, I, I loved my time in Formula One. You just realize that it's, it's for me, it wasn't going to be compatible with the sort of life, family life I wanted to have. But um, in terms of the, the management of the company, and <clears throat> my, my wife works in the city and she used to laugh about how bad the management was in general because it's run by engineers who aren't you know, great business people generally. But I think the... It, it's more for me what I've learned when I brought forward is more about the the process the um you know the process of, of, of iterate, iterating how you keep how you design how you're constantly looking to improve things um actually like there's there's a danger that you this is one thing John and I used to talk about in the early days like at what point do you say this is good enough now we're going to release it as a consumer product because the way we're sort of wired having spent all of our careers in that sort of industry is just to kind of to keep improving and keep improving. Yeah, it's interesting. I was talking to a business consultant recently and he was talking about this idea of agile project management where we have design, build, test, deploy. And it's quite a nice concept to bring back to our personal lives, even with things like calendar construction at the start of the week where we design that calendar, we build it out, we test it, we deploy it, and then we tweak it for the following week to try and optimize our schedules. There is cool things that we do in corporate or you do in these high-performance environments like Formula One, that when you bring them back into a different vertical like your family life, like your sporting life, it adds a new dimension that we don't normally think of. Yeah, no, I, I, I think that's that's absolutely true. I'm, I'm probably not great at applying those ideals to my to my home life. And actually, every now and again, I, I need to sort of reset and um, and think about how you're going to do things better. I've always had this this sort of idea in the back of my head that lies very much like sort of climbing up a, a cliff face. And, you know, at some point, some of us say, you know what, the view's pretty good from here. I'm going to rest <laughs> up and enjoy the view. And, and, and others of us keep on climbing until we die and fall off without ever getting to enjoy the view. So for me, it's always been like, you know, periodically you need to kind of stop and reassess and say, like, what are we doing here? How can I improve it? How can I tweak it? Certainly, what I'm finding at the moment, because I'm in quite a stressful phase of the business, because we're just building, designing, building the production versions, is constantly thinking like, do I need to be doing this? Can I get somebody else to do it? Um, and I, I used to do my my bookkeeping up until recently, and one of, actually my next door neighbour said like, that's just crazy. What are you doing? And you know, of course it's crazy. So you're, you're like, okay, you know, obviously I can I can farm that out, get somebody else to do it. Like that's like you sweeping the floors in the wind tunnel. Yeah, exactly. But it's very much the case. And even for my PhD, the, I think probably more than the academics, what you learn is to be self-sufficient, to be able to do everything yourself. And I, I think most engineers I've spoken to will say, well, you know, we're engineers, we can do this ourselves. I can drive a spreadsheet, I can do my bookkeeping, it's not going to take me long. But then you, when you're under a lot of time pressure, you realise that you're spending all your time, so much time doing this stuff when it's, it's, it's just not efficient. So really it's about sort of 
optimizing the efficiency and you know trying to take take an objective look at your whole lot you know your private life your, your personal life your work life and saying like how can i improve this why do you think you're struggling to let go of that is it a control thing or is it a quality control thing i think like I, i've certainly had experiences for example with social media earlier in the year when i was trying to get that going where you'd take on a social media company and you know i'm, I'm probably quite ocd so you end up you know nothing's quite right you ask them to do something that they don't quite do it as you want it and you sort of think well you know what i, I could just do it myself i spend so much time telling them what to do and then correcting what they've done you think well you know what i'll just do it myself which is bonkers like absolutely bonkers it, it's, it's probably like a, a like you say part, partly a lack of control thing but partly a trust thing just not being able to trust other people to do things up to the level that you expect it's also maybe based on and not telling you anything you don't know because you're an engineer and it's an engineering problem. It's based on the flawed assumption that you almost have unlimited time because maybe yeah. if you take the social media example, they can do it at 80% of the capacity you can. The bookkeeping, maybe you can do it at 80% of the capacity you can. But if we start and we introduce six, seven, eight, ten, fifteen 10, 15 tasks, you can't do all of those at the same time. Yeah. Exactly, and actually, in, in the last few weeks, I've got to the point where I'm I'm really having to be pretty strict with myself about, you know, in fact, this 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 morning for for what for somebody who's actually using AeroCenter at the moment, I was writing a bit of code to improve the sort of automated analysis of it, and I, I was my temptation is to go right back to the beginning and you know do something very very fundamental, and then you you've got to sort of you know slap yourself and say no, but like there are bits of code out there that do. X, Y, and Z. You just need to link them up and and send it. It's it's good and that's good enough. You don't. Not everything you do has to be perfect. What's the next twelve months look like in terms of team building for you? What key employees do you need to get to realise your vision? So the nice thing about and the only advantage of where I've got to now is I understand every aspect of the device, every aspect of the business intimately. I've got somebody um, actually starting on the first of December. Um, he'll be my first full-time employee. Up until now, I've been using sort of design contractors, um, you know, consultants to help me out. <clears throat> so he he will start, um, and that will take us through to April. So at the moment, where uh, we've run our Indiegogo campaign, I'd initially said that I'd ship units in February. I, I pushed that back to April because, um, you know, as, as always, it's more involved than I thought it would be. That's pretty much the whole process. I've got everyone lined up to do that. The design's coming on along well. Like I know what that's going to look like. I just need Marcus, the guy who's coming to help me, to just to help me out because there's so much day-to-day answering the phone, replying to emails, um, little bits of design work, etc. Towards the end of this year, we're going to open a, a um, an online shop that will start kind of stabilizing how much income we've got going forward. And so I'd hope that by sort of April. May will take on somebody else and then just grow organically, I think, from, from, from there, depending on how the business goes. You mentioned Indiegogo. Uh, can you disclose the amount you raised on that or do you have further plans to raise friends and family rounds? No, it's, it, it, it's on there. So in terms of the, of the funding up until last sort of September, I was entirely self-funded. So that's, that's kind of basically burning through the cash that I'd accumulated over 10 years of, of consulting. I took on uh, a guy called Tim Greaves, who was a uh, he, he's invested in me, and then about three or four months ago, another guy, Joachim Ritter, guy who lives in Switzerland, very keen sprint cyclist, actually, he's invested in me as, as well. So that actually gives us enough cash to 
do everything we need to do. We've got more than enough cash to support ourselves. Indiegogo, I've raised £52,000 on that, and we're not actually going to make a lot of money out of that. The reason for doing it is is twofold. Firstly, kind of to, to raise our profile. So we're kind of getting people talking about it. We're starting to get an idea of like why what what are the sort of people that are going to buy this? What are their concerns? Um, you know, that they they lots of people email me asking me questions, I can answer them. And that's always feeding into the process. Um, because I've I read a book a little while ago about the concept of a minimum viable product. And quite often what this book was saying was especially in software, people spend a lot of time developing an aspect of the software that actually people don't care about. And when you release the software, actually what they want is something different. So my idea really has been to try and get it out there. It also puts you under some pressure to get the production done. So it it, it really sort of accelerates that whole process of bringing it to market with feedback from people as as you go through. And you're in an interesting space in, from what I know about your product, and I've had Pat Warner uh, present the stage oh, yep. on the show who used the product to break the world error record off a very modest power output, Pat won't mind me saying. And his CDA was incredible. He was, you know, better than Dan Bingham CDA attempting the, the world error record. And when you create a product that is the best you have this top-down marketing effect where you're going to have the best athletes want to get their hands on this product. Your customers become your brand ambassadors, which is a really interesting space. And most products don't get that because they build a bottom-up product and they try and pay brand ambassadors to unauthentically say, I'm using this product and everyone can call bullshit on that straight away. We know Usain Bolt's not using the shitty step counter like... For sure, for sure, and in fact, it's sort of interesting because one of the um, another early investors, Chris Hoy, who like we, we aren't paying him any money. His, his I, I met him first. In fact, he was he's a friend of my original investor, and um, Tim got Chris over so that we could discuss it. And straight away, like it was incredible. Actually, straight away, he got it. He understood the whole thing, and um, so I thought, crikey, if, if I've got Chris Hoy behind this, it's just going to fly. We did a video with him. But funnily enough, like people aren't, it, it hasn't really made, and it's very difficult to know how much difference it's made, but it hasn't made that much difference. And talking to him recently, he was saying, yeah, because you know what, people, like you say, people call bullshit on it. If you get some big name behind you, people think, no, there's no way that you're not you know, paying him just to be a brand ambassador. And of, of course, he's it's there because he's a big name. That's, that's why he's why, why there. But actually, you need, it's actually something Chris said to me a, a little while ago, you need people who are successful to be using it of their own volition. And then once people catch on to that, then they're going to want it. It was Pat Warner's story that hooked me on it and inspired me to reach out to you. And Pat made the introduction where I was like, I, I can't remember Pat's power figures off the top of my head, but I was looking at it and going, well, no. Like I was almost ready to call bullshit on Pat's time based on those power <laughs> figures. I'm like, you're either lying about your time or you're lying about your power because that time did not happen with that power. And then he, I think he said his, his CDA was like, 0.165 or 1.167 or something and i was like what the it, hell it, it's, it's it's lowest i've i've seen on our device but but pat pat's a really interesting guy because he has gone into the nth level of detail i think when when he was using some of the results he shared with me he was doing things like changing his you know removing his gloves that he was wearing looking at different obviously looking at different helmets really going into like the very fine detail the effect of tire pressures like pat's a real detail guy and this is what I like about it. Again, going back to the Formula One thing, that it's a, it's an accumulation of marginal gains. 
you know, it's, it's a very famous concept that gives you that performance. Everybody, and certainly in Formula One, people used to think when, when we were at Ferrari, I remember we were being beaten by Renault and, and people, um, just, just a, a quick aside, there was this story that um, Schumacher, who drove our car, one day, like just suddenly went a lot quicker. And when they were re- when they were taking the car apart after the test, they found that a bolt in the suspension was loose. And so they launched this whole project called the Magic Bolt, literally called the Magic Bolt Project, where they <laughs> were looking into whether a loose bolt was going to make him faster. And that, this was like a three or four month project because everybody thinks there's some sort of single silver bullet. People are always chasing that sort of rainbow. But actually, the teams who do well, they've just done everything well. Yeah. So that's that's very much where Pat's at. But like I've been to the wind tunnel on back oh, like when I was with my American team so back eight nine years ago I went to the wind tunnel dragged to zero over in the UK and oh yeah it's not cheap I, I can't remember exactly how much it costs but it's not cheap and you're getting the ferry across for here from Ireland you're bringing bikes with you it's like from what I remember it's like a two-hour session but you also are limited a little bit by the equipment you have. You need to bring a bunch of different stems, which you. you need to bring a bunch of different risers, which and changing from one uh, riser angle on your spacers to the next one, that's eaten into valuable wind tunnel time. So you don't get that many runs at the thing to optimize your position. And I still came out with some pretty good gains, but I went away yeah. with those gains and I'm like, okay, here's a position I was able to hold for two minutes in the wind tunnel. But now when I go out into the real world and I try and hold this position for a 25-mile time trial, you know, I find I can't hold it after 10-mile in race conditions. So why I'm fascinated and why I wanted to get you onto this is this is potentially a real inflection point, one of the biggest since we've had maybe the democratization of the power meter coming into the sport and, yeah. you know, when the prices came down on it, where we can really go a lot, lot faster. Like I'm at a stage where, you know, I've been cycling for 10 years. If I add 10 watts onto my threshold this year, you know, I'll work hard to get that 10 watts on. Yeah. But I could potentially take my CDA down three, four points. And that's a massive impact on speed. It's huge. It's it's sort of shocking to me that it's taken the cycling industry this long to wake up to it. I guess in part because testing has been very expensive. But um, like a lot of the testing I've been doing over the last year has been in the velodrome just because it's a controlled environment for in terms of understanding how the system's working it just takes out a lot of, of noise and, and i've got to the stage where over us like a single lap you can really see differences of less than a percent like if you're holding position well over you know 15 16 17 seconds lap you can see those sorts of gains and the really interesting thing for me is because that that's displayed so how it works is it displays that drag coefficient on your um, bike on your Garmin bike computer, <clears throat> it also beams it to the track side in case you've got a coach. So if you make a change in your cycling, you can see straight away, okay, that this isn't what I want it to be. You can do a couple more laps. Yeah, this is going nowhere. I'll just ditch it, come back in, do a change, and come back out again. Um, doing testing at Derby, I think, costs something like £150 an, an hour, um, or maybe a little bit less than that. Like It, it makes it dirt cheap compared to I'm dirt cheap. It's not cheap for a lot of people, but compared to wind tunnel testing, which can be, um, you know, a thousand pounds plus for a session, it's um, it's extremely beneficial. Plus, you're in the real world. Like as we used to say in F1, like races are not one in the wind tunnel. It's it's the wind tunnel is a great place to get an idea of what might be better. But you have to go out and actually demonstrate that you can hold that position for a long um, period. And in outside, especially with real world wind conditions something that's better in the wind tunnel may very well not be better on, on the track. 
on the road. I feel like you're going to be a hero and a villain in equal measure when this hits the market because you're going to, the device is going to call bullshit on everything from wheel manufacturers' claims to frame manufacturers to kit manufacturers. Like taking two cycling kits, uh, one is maybe a budget kit and another is a highbrow kit. If the budget kit turns out to be way faster, I just don't see what the future is for that highbrow kit. Like we're going to very soon start to see big data trends emerging from a meaningful sample of people showing which kits are faster, which bikes are faster, which wheels are faster. And not in this crazy, you know, marketing sense that we're seeing bikes going into the wind tunnel and they fire one of 10 million specific yaw angles at it and then say our bike is fastest in the wind tunnel under this very narrow yaw angle, which you're never going to experience in real life. You know, that's a marketing stunt and most people can see through that. Yeah, that... In, in fact, that's one of the things I'm very interested in is is wheels in particular. You'll test them in the wind tunnel, and, and like you know, typically they'll the kind of deep rim wheels. You'll you'll lose drag because of the sail effect up to 10, 11, 12 degrees your angle, and then they stall, and you gain a lot of drag. Now that's steady state, so you're you're going through your different your angles, and you're saying, well, this is what the drag will be. When we've been out on the road, um, we've sampled as high as 80 hertz to see what the wind speed and the wind your angle. Um, looks like because we, we can measure up to 50 degrees of um, five zero degrees of of your angle, and it's on the road. It's all over the place. I mean, we, we can be seeing, you know, if you're seeing a meet, an average of say 10 degrees your, which is quite high, we've seen fluctuations that take it from minus 10 to plus 30 or plus 40 degrees on a, on a windy day because of the you know the, the 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 trees at the side of the road and passing cars and everything else. And there's absolutely no way the wheel the wheel is going to behave in the same way with a fluctuating airflow compared to a completely you know high quality steady flow at a single angle. So understanding how these wheels behave in the real world is going to be absolutely critical. And I think I think you'll see before too long wheel manufacturers realizing they have to do this and they have to promote their wheels based on real world performance and not just wind tunnel numbers. So I'm going to be able to optimize everything from my kit to my body position. But I'm wondering if you bring it into a road racing context, because I've seen images of it. It is quite portable. I'm not sure if UCI are going to come out on Bana or what, but is there potential to start looking at your garment to find out where the most shelter is in an echelon in a crosswinds? Yeah, very, very much so. And it, you have to remember that it's only a point measurement. So the wind that the device isn't saying, is saying isn't the same as what your whole body and bike is seeing. But you can certainly start to see where that, you know, w- where you're getting that biggest drag along, both by measuring the drag and by looking at what the wind's doing at different locations in, in, in the echelon, like, like, like you say. HVMN is one of today's show sponsors. I've been hearing pro riders talking about ketones since I started this show. How they're the secret weapon of the world's elite, but what are they? Well, ketones are a natural source of fuel for your body. They're up to 28% more efficient than glucose, making them a super efficient fuel source for those long rides or races. HVMN have developed a product called Ketone IQ, which is a drinkable ketone designed to support energy, focus, and endurance. It was developed alongside the US military. It's designed to elevate your ketone levels for up to four hours, which is longer than any other product on the market. Plus it's caffeine free and it's compliant with the World Anti-Doping Agency guidelines. Ketone IQ shots are the best way to get your ketones in on the go. 
I think it's so amazing that we can now, as amateur cyclists, have access to ketones. For years, they've really only been available to professional athletes. But now us mere mortals can get all the benefits of using this superior fuel source. I'm also finding them great first thing in the morning. I'm taking one on an empty stomach as soon as I wake up. It suppresses hunger and it's improved my focus so I can get that deep podcast research in early in the morning. So go right now and visit hvmn.com forward slash slash roadman cycling and use the code roadman20 at checkout to save 20%. If you're looking to up your game this coming season, this is the edge you've been looking for, folks. So visit hvmn.com forward slash roadman cycling and use the code roadman20 at checkout to save 20% on your order. All the details of that offer are in today's show notes. How do you see this ecosystem developing? Who are the competitors? in there at the moment and do you see more competition coming into this space yeah i think so so we know, know that there's there's aeropod which is quite a a relatively simple device it doesn't measure wind wind draw angle there's notio that seem to have died i don't really know what's happening happening there but they they don't seem to be doing anything anymore there's a company called ghibli who are doing something relative a bit similar to what we're doing they're measuring wind draw angle with a novel probe garmin have looked at it um although i believe that they've they've dropped it um my ex-colleague John, he's got a company called Streamlines who are, who are doing a, a similar thing, but more of a, a sort of cloud processing um, solution rather than sort of live on the Garmin. So lots of people are are, are attacking the problem pretty hard. Um, most of the existing systems, um, another one called Aerolab actually, rely on uploading data to the cloud, doing that calculation and then sending it back to you. For me, it's always been important that people can you know, have the transparency that the data is just live on the Garmin. Like what if you take my system to the to the track or the road, the number you see on your Garmin is is a number. There's a few corrections you can do if you got your, you know, your weight wrong, you can post correct it. But it's it's very transparent. It's like a power meter. And for me, these devices, if they're going to hit the mainstream, they need to be like a power meter. They sit on your bike and they integrate with the rest of your data. And that's the way it is. I might be right, I might be wrong. I, I don't know. But Whoever can create a system that's seamless and accurate, that's what's going to change the, the industry. Have you looked at my best bike split? Do you know what that is? Yeah, I, I, I've, I've never used it. I'm, I'm, I'm aware of, like, roughly aware of what it is. Freakishly accurate. Like, and the, the flaw in it at the moment is most people are estimating their CDA. So anyone listening that doesn't know my best bike split, you'll map your course, it'll figure out, you know, you put in the GPX file, it'll figure out prevailing wind conditions, You'll put in your historical power data because it links in with your training peaks, I think it is. And it will spit out a pacing strategy and a projected finish time for you. But the flaw in it is, and it's a it's a big flaw that you'll understand more than most, Barney. It's like underestimating or overestimating your coefficient of frontal drag can totally throw off your pacing strategy. Yeah, absolutely. And I think not only that, and something we John and I used to talk about with best bikes fit is actually what the wind looks like on the ground isn't the same as what the you know if, if you take the, the the met forecast and project that onto the ground that's not really what the wind actually looks like because sort of local geographical features can change can change that plus as you say you're making the assumption of what your drag coefficient is and also assuming that that's constant as an example one one of the pages on our connect iq app has got a little dial that shows you how what percentage of your power is going into aero that allows you to make then a decision about how important you know how hard you need to try and get in that you know awkward position on the bike Interesting. versus getting power out 
a lot of people say, well, you know, that's obvious. I know if I'm going uphill, I can get out the saddle. If I'm going downhill, I need to get down. And that's, yeah, yes, you're right. But if you're going on the flats into a headwind versus tailwind, if you're going uphill on a slight incline, but there's a strong headwind, you probably will still want to get down. If you're going um, downhill with a tailwind, it, it, it might not matter that much. And so starting to sort of in real time educate you about, you know, now is the time to take a bit of a rest or take a drink because your aero position isn't that important versus now aero is really important. So, you know, forget pedaling that hard, even just get yourself down into a minimum position. I think for, for a lot of people, it's not that intuitive all the time exactly where that balance is. And we can tell you, you know, to the nearest percent, this is 86% is how much power is going to your aero. And so therefore you should be doing this right now. That's interesting because you can almost start to come up with real time, you know, I'm thinking of a, a 10 mile, something control, the 10 mile or a 25 mile time trial. And we're talking about that best bike split idea of, you know, exactly what power you need to put out for each quarter to get to your goal time. But from what you're saying, the wind conditions that are forecast are different to the actual wind conditions the sensor is encountering and your body's encountering at the time. So I'm wondering, is there almost a, a version two or a version three application of, okay, you're saying you want to ride a 21-minute 10-mile TT here. With these conditions, you're going to need to push a bit harder right now. You know, you're, you're falling behind on where you need to be. Yeah, I, I, I think that's exactly it. Like, Best Bike Space is, is, is an amazing tool. If you can start to feed into that real data, then it's going to get obviously better and um actually one thing um we've done before actually is to run it on the one of the early riders of a tt stage and they basically like or, or on, on one of the recce laps of a tt stage and they can map out what the wind looks like and that could influence what wheels the team end up running or what their strategy is based on real on the ground data and actually there's, there's nothing else out there at the moment that you can do that with so um and actually somebody i was talking to the other day was saying well you know could you actually run it on the front of one of the cars following one of the riders in in the um one of the early earlier stages so there's a there's a lot of sort of secondary applications i think which will start to creep in that really educate you about how to run your your race um more than just your what your current drag coefficient is who do you see the consumer being i think in the short term it's going to be your competitive cyclists people like you who know that it's going to be a, a struggle to get an extra 10 watts they can't necessarily don't have the resources to go into you know into drag to zero wind tunnel um or even the, the silverstone wind, wind tunnel they they understand the importance of aero and want to um work on it so, so sort of i think of it like power meters where when they first came out they're really like specifically for the the most um committed competitive cyclists and also they were expensive so they were for those with the deepest pockets but actually over time people have started to learn that they need these devices they work better they're more mainstream and so it will start to trickle down to the point where you'll you'll see the sunday cyclists you know here in the surrey hills with these devices on their bike because they just they want the data i think pe people are data hungry and having being able to understand why you were struggling on your strava segment this week you know, it's, it's obviously great if you can say, well, the wind was a bit higher, my drag coefficient's the same, my power's the same. You, you can take out all those environment, environmental factors. You know what, just to push back on that idea of people wanting data a little bit, I feel like the pendulum swung a little bit on that. We're sick of data. We've too much data. What I want is a prescription. I want to know what to do with that data. I want to know yeah. how to alter my behavior based on that data. And I don't ha necessarily have the time or energy to make those deductions myself. So 
I think that's an interesting user interface application of that data as to what changes. Like, can you start it off and onboard it and like get people to go through a protocol of testing helmets, testing? Because data on its own, it annoys the shit out of everyone I talk to. Really, that's that, that, that's interesting. No, I, I think I think that's true. And, and you, I've I've got a, a watch that tells me my heart rate, and I, I can take it off and leave it on the side, and it'll still tell me what my heart rate is. Like, there's there's I think there's a lot of bad data. People have got too much data for sure. Um, quite a few people have said, and there's something I'm very aware of, that the data has to be actionable. If you if you see a number, you do a test, you need to know what to do next. So, you know, certainly one of the things we're going to be doing um, with, with Chris Hoy is, is make, we're going to make some videos about exactly how you should go testing. You know, the, the, the first video will be, you know, how you get it set up, how you go testing, how you run an aerodynamic test, what sort of things you should try and what you should do about that data. What does that data mean? Like how many watts have you saved? If you do um, one body position change and your drag gets worse, what should you do instead? And so it, it, it definitely, I think the nice thing about this sort of data, almost more than power, because up to a point, your, your power is, is, is what it is. You can, you know, you're getting better with time, but with aerodynamic data, you can see in real time, if I move my, hands, you know, a bit further, further up or my elbows in or my head a bit further down, you can do these little changes and see, okay, yeah, that's, that's a bit better. I'm going to have a bit more of that. It's very obvious when you're on the wind in, in the velodrome because the data is so instant, you can make these little changes and almost straight away, you see that you're getting, you know, that you're improving, that you're getting better. I love that idea because it, it needs to become prescriptive. Like I'm thinking about two of the apps I'm using at the moment, my fitness pal and super sapiens. So mm. super sapiens is a continuous glucose monitor. Oh, I've just got one of them just as a Oh, you do? As an experiment, like really interesting. So you'll start to look at it and you'll go, okay, cool. I had the white bread with jam for breakfast and my blood sugar went up. And you kind of look at it after a while and go, okay, blood sugar goes up when I eat this, blood sugar goes down when I eat this, left, right, and sideways Mm -hmm. here. But unless you're really into the data and experimenting to try and create these little controlled experiments of manipulating one variable at a time for yourself, it's very hard to make that actionable. Because all this data is sitting in an island in a vacuum on its own. When my my fitness pal also sits on the side, they need to talk to each other and say, don't have the jam sandwich, or if you are having the jam sandwich, have it an hour later. It needs to become actionable about my lifestyle rather than training peaks having one load of my data, my fitness pal having another, super sapiens having another, and they're all in a vacuum. And I'm like, I don't know what to do with any of this. Yeah, true. and as a as a layman, non scientist, my background's law. So you know, I'd like to think I have a decent grasp on you know constructing problems, trying to come up with solutions, iterating on that. But I'm not a scientist, so I'll wake up and I will say, okay, I'll try and create quite a rudimentary experiment with super sapiens myself. I'll have. 60 grams of porridge in the morning and I'll weigh out the oats and okay, here's the effect I had on my blood sugar on Tuesday. Yeah. And I'll wake up the next morning and I'll have 60 grams of porridge at the exact same time of the day, exact same quantities, and it'll have a totally different effect on my blood sugar. So then I'll have to go back and I'm like, okay, what happened there? And then you figure out, well, sleep actually hugely impacts how we metabolize carbohydrates. So it's like, okay, well, now, now what am I meant to do with that data? It just becomes so unactionable that it becomes frustrating. And then you get yeah. that customer churn where customers are like, oh, I couldn't be arsed with this. So I'd love to see your product come to that place where it's like, change your helmet, change your kit, and actually onboard the person through that rather than being you know, another product that's designed for the, the 1% of data geeks out there. Yeah. Yeah. So, and in, in fact, I've, I've been talking to, um, I don't know if you've come across AeroTune, 
um, no. which is a website um, that the guy's is Sebastian. I, I, I'm afraid I forget his his surname, but he's um, Sebastian Schlurich. He's made created this this website, and the idea of it is, is you can just with a power meter, without any sort of error sensor, you can. He's got videos on there showing you how you go error testing, and then you can upload your fit file, and his software will calculate your drag coefficient and plot it in some like really nice plots. And I've been talking to him about integrating our data because what, where this is leading is he he's creating this whole ecosystem where everybody there's many, I think he's got you know a few thousand people on his platform now. They're sharing the best places to go error testing. They're sharing their own tests. What's their CDA? What did they try? What were their results? And so I've always felt quite strongly that this is, you're going to get the biggest impact if you can create this community where people can guide each other. Hey, have you tried this? Have you tried that? Oh, I tried this helmet the other day. It didn't do what I thought it would. Oh, yeah, I had the same. Maybe it's because it's a bit windy. Like aerodynamics is complicated. Everybody's an armchair aerodynamicist. They think it's simple, but it's, it's massively complicated. So creating these sort of ecosystems where people can learn what to do, as well as these videos you want to create, which is going to guide people through the process and give them tips about how to test there's there's a lot of education that needs to happen you know, for our consumers to get so that they can get the best out of these devices because without that as you say it's, it's just another random number gen, number generator that's not gonna um make you faster and just to finish up and to round out that thought you were having we said it's not going to make you faster if somebody uses this so we take our fictitious listener we'll call him Damien, who's riding the 10-mile time trial at 23 minutes at the moment. Could you estimate a normal person totally unoptimized on a 2,000-euro time trial bike what their CDA is and how much scope there is to improve that CDA without throwing a Formula 1 budget at it? I, off, off, off the top of my head, I, I did look at some numbers a little while ago, and it's... um. I, I, to be honest, I, I, I can't remember off the top of my head, but it, it's going to be of the order of minutes that you can you can shave off. Actually, there, there's there's an interesting paper um, I can send your link to after this, where they they looked at the effect of over I think it was a 40k time trial, the effect of weight and nutrition and training and and aero wheels body position, and the biggest effect by far on the sort of average cyclist was just optimizing their body position. Um, I, don't, I don't remember the numbers, but it was it was something like. 90 seconds over a 40 kilometer time trial that your sort of mid-range athlete should be able to shave off by just optimizing their position on the bike. I know when I went into the wind tunnel, I was at like 0.22 CDA and I came out somewhere in the 0.18. So if you're... Bloody hell, that's a, that's a lot. I was shocking going in. <laughs> I was absolutely shocking. But then again, the, the, the position wasn't achievable when I came out. Yeah. So it's a theoretical it, it, game. Exactly, exactly. So, but if you're able to get that sort of gain, like, are we looking at a minute, two minutes, three minutes ballpark on a 25 mile time trial, 40 kilometers? Honestly, off, off the top of my head, I, I'm, I'm not good at this stuff, this sort of thing, but from 0.22 to 0.18, and that's, that's like a, crikey, like a 20% reduction in your, in your drag, which is equivalent to like a 15% increase in power. So, you know, if you're making 300 watts, that's like a, equivalent to, um, you know, a 60 watt improvement. Like it's, it's there's some quick maths. Yeah, it, it, it's massive. What that means over the 40k time trial, I'm not totally sure, but it, it's going to be minutes. Like it's, yeah, that, it's that, big. It's, it is it's, really big. It's massive. But the interesting, like, like I was saying earlier, okay, you couldn't hold that position 
for their full time trial. But if you know when to get in that position, then that's really interesting. That that that's your ticket. Like understand, okay, I can't hold the position for long, but you know, I know this is the most important bit, so I'm going to really get down and just suffer through it. And then a bit later, you know that it's less important, so you can have a bit of a rest. And even on the descent as well, it's very interesting because there's time and road races gained from descending and descending positions. And at that speed, I'd imagine small changes in your body position matter a lot. Yeah, a, 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 a huge amount, absolutely huge amount. And, and, and this is why, you know, the, the, the kind of classic Chris Froome video of him in the Superman position on, on the bike, overtaking other guys who are furiously pedaling away, it, it just goes to show that aero at high speeds is everything. 90 plus percent going downhill of your power is just pushing you through the air. So you're getting this point where between you know a, a 10% improvement in reduction in your drag is almost 10% increase in power, which is massive. It's wild. It's yeah, wild. exactly. Uh, Barney, the product absolutely amazing. I can't wait to check out, get my hands on it. And the story is fascinating. Uh, thanks very much for joining me on the Roadman podcast. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much, Anthony. Really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Have you ever wondered how good you could actually be? Each of us has a unique set of circumstances with work, family and social obligations, but we also want to fulfill our potential in cycling. Okay, okay, maybe you won't ever win the Tour de France, but for most of us, this is what cycling is about. So let us build you the perfect training plan around your lifestyle that's totally unique to you and will help you finally realize your cycling dreams. So whether you're just getting started on the bike or if you're a more seasoned cyclist, we have a suitable coach for you. So why not schedule a call with us and we can have a chat about how we can help you go further than you ever dreamed of in your cycling and fitness goals. Go to roadmancycling.com forward slash contact or pop me an email directly to sarah at roadmancycling.com.